0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at tiaa.org/promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. We all have the instincts to be super communicators. They're actually part of how evolution has shaped our brain. But once we learn how to use those instincts and those tools to become the super communicators we want to be when we want to,
1: that's when we can have the most meaningful conversations. Hey guys, how's it going? This is the next Big Idea Daily, and I'm your host, Michael Kovnat. Now as a podcast host, I guess you'd say I'm a professional communicator, but am I any good at it? I'll let others be the judge of that. You may have noticed that the skill of communicating well is not evenly distributed among the population. But imagine how much better your life and career would be if you mastered this superpower, if you were able to effortlessly use words and body language to inspire, influence, and connect. Well, you're in luck, people, because Charles Duhigg is here to share some big ideas from his latest book, Super Communicators, How to Unlock the Secret Language of Connection. Charles is a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative journalist and the best selling author of The Power of Habit and Smarter, Faster, Better. He writes for The New Yorker and other publications and was previously a senior editor at The New York Times. Here he is to share his key insights. I want to tell you a little bit about why
0: I started writing Super Communicators. I had this problem that I'm imagining many of you also have, which is sometimes I would come home after a long day at work. And I would be in a bad mood. You know, my boss would have been mean to me and I'd start complaining to my wife and telling her all about my, my woes, you know, that my boss doesn't understand me and that, that my coworkers don't appreciate me. And she very practically and sensibly and rationally would respond with some good advice. She'd say something like, why don't you take your boss out to lunch and that way you guys can get to know each other a little bit better and, and hopefully you'll be able to overcome these problems. But instead of hearing her, instead of hearing what she was saying, Instead, I would get more upset. And I would say things like, why aren't you supporting me? You're supposed to be on my side. I want you to be outraged on my behalf. And when I would get upset, she would, of course, get upset because she's like, look, why are you acting so irrational? This is not a hard problem. For some reason, we just couldn't hear each other. We couldn't connect. And so one of the things I did is I started calling up experts, the communications experts, experts in neurology and psychology, and asking them, what do we actually know about how communication functions? And they said, one of the biggest lessons is that most of us think that when we go into a discussion, that discussion is about one thing. And they said, but that's all wrong. Actually, when we have a discussion, we're actually having multiple different kinds of conversations, oftentimes interwoven with each other. Most conversations fall into one of three big buckets. There are practical conversations, right? Conversations where we talk about setting plans for the future or making decisions together or solving a problem. But then there's another kind of conversation that we have, the second big bucket, which is that oftentimes when we discuss something, we want to share our emotions. These are emotional conversations. And in those conversations, we don't want our problem to be solved. We just want to explain how we feel and we want other people to share with us how they feel as well. And then there's a third big bucket of conversations, which are social conversations. Conversations where we talk about how we relate to other people and how they relate to us, how we see ourselves and how society sees us, how that influences the choices we make and what we feel like is possible and not possible. These three different kinds of conversations, the practical conversation, the emotional conversation, and the social conversation, those make up most of the discussions that we have. And the key is, If you're not having the same kind of conversation as the other person, you're going to miscommunicate. That's exactly what would happen with with me and my wife, right? I would come in and I was having an emotional conversation. I was upset. I wanted her to hear how I felt. And she, she responded with a practical conversation, which was rational and made sense. But because I was in an emotional mindset and she was in a practical mindset, we both failed to hear each other. We failed to connect. This is a really important insight. And in fact, it's so important that oftentimes now in schools, they teach teachers how to use this with a, with a pretty easy thing that I kind of love, which is they say, look, if a student comes up and they have something to tell you and they're upset or they're excited or whatever it is, ask them, do you want me to hear you? Do you want me to help you? Or do you want me to hug you? And these three things, of course, correspond to the three conversations I just mentioned. In fact, now my wife and I actually do that with each other. And if I come home and I'm complaining about my day. And she'll say, well, look, do you want me to, to hear you, to help you or to hug you? I'll say, look, I just want you to hear me. I just want you to listen to like how, how frustrating this is for me. Once we understand how to recognize the different kinds of conversations that are happening around us, that's when we learn how to become super communicators because we all have that capacity. We all have the instincts to be super communicators are actually part of how evolution has shaped our brain. But once we learn how to use those instincts and those tools to become the super communicators we want to be when we want to, that's when we can have the most meaningful conversations. So how exactly do we actually do that, right? How do we figure out what kind of conversation is going on here? And what science has found is that there's a pretty easy technique for doing so, which is to ask questions, but a certain kind of question, what's known as a deep question, When we've done studies of people who are super communicators on a regular basis, people who seem to understand something deeply about communication, what's found is that oftentimes these super communicators, they ask 10 to 20 times as many questions as everyone else. But we don't often notice that they're asking these questions because so many of the questions are so easy to hear and respond to. They're questions like, what do you think of that? Oh, that's interesting. Wait, Why do you think that happened? Oh, you know, what happened next? Oh, that's really interesting. Like, what do you think was going on inside his head when he said that? These might seem like kind of throwaway questions, but they're actually deep questions. A deep question is a question that asks us to talk about our values, our beliefs, or our experiences, because in doing so, we reveal something about who we are to the other person. To, to us, the person who's asking the question, we learn about it, whoever we're talking to by asking them a deep question. And deep questions can be really easy to ask. For instance, if, uh, if someone's a lawyer, you can say, oh, you know, you're a lawyer, so did you always want to practice the law? When did you decide to go to law school? Do you love your job? All three of those are deep questions, and they don't seem overly intimate or probing or inappropriate, but what they do is they invite the other person to talk about what matters to them most, right? To discuss how they decided to become a lawyer, how they saw their dad be impacted by the justice system, and they wanted to fight for people like him, how they love their job because they love helping people or they love their colleagues. That simple question, that deep question is a way to invite someone else to tell you what matters to them and, more importantly, to tell you what kind of conversation they want to have. Oftentimes, when we're talking to someone, what we really need to do is listen as closely to their non-linguistic communication as the words coming out of their mouth. In the 1980s, NASA had a basic problem, which is, they needed to start choosing different kinds of astronauts. Up until then, most space missions were very, very short, usually just a couple of days at most. But President Ronald Reagan said that he wanted to build a space station where people could go up and live in it for six months to a year. And for NASA, this meant we need a different kind of astronaut because we need someone who, if they're going to live in this tin can surrounded by a vacuum for six months or a year with other people, they need to be pretty pretty good at connecting. They need to have a high emotional IQ. They need to know how to get along with people and to listen to their emotions and share their own emotions. They needed people who were good at understanding what kind of conversation was happening and matching people. So they ask their top psychologist who reviews every single applicant who comes into NASA to come up with a system to do this. And for two years, he tries And he can't come up with anything because the problem is if you're in the final round of being chosen to be an astronaut for NASA, you're really, really good, right? Like you have practiced the answer to every question. You've gotten every single thing right in your entire life. You know how to fake emotional intelligence as good as anyone. But when you're in space with someone for six months or a year, it can't be faked. It has to be real. It has to be genuine and authentic. So this psychologist, he starts trying to figure out, how do I detect who has real emotional intelligence, who really has skill and talent at connecting with other people from the people who can fake it really, really well? Well, he's listening to some old recordings of interviews that he's done with astronauts when he notices something. The people who they've chosen who ended up becoming great astronauts, and then the people who were chosen to be astronauts who ended up washing out, they weren't good fits, The thing he notices is they answer the questions very similarly, but they laugh really differently. And the psychologist came up with this test. What he would do is when he would walk into the interview room, he would be carrying a big stack of papers and he would be wearing this garish yellow tie. And as soon as he walked into the room, he would accidentally spill the papers, right? It was actually on purpose, but he would spill the papers all over and then he would start laughing at it. And he'd start picking up the papers, and then he would look at the candidate, the person who's waiting to be interviewed, and he would point to his tie, and he's like, you know, I look like a clown today after dropping all these papers. My kid made me wear this, like, ugly tie. And and the psychologist would, again, laugh really, really loudly. And what he was looking for, what he was paying attention to is, how did the candidate laugh back? Did the candidate match his basic energy and mood? or did the candidate do something different? Because everyone knows if someone's laughing, you should laugh back, right? That's basic social like politeness. But people who want to connect, people who are talented at connecting, they tend to match our energy and our mood when we communicate non-linguistically. So he goes in, he spills these papers, the interviewer starts laughing really loud, the candidate looks at him and he goes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's hard. They go on to some other questions. The psychologist starts asking all the interview questions. He gets to a stage where he asks, you know, what's the hardest thing you've ever been through? And the man starts talking about the fact that his father had passed away a few years earlier and how hard that was. And the interviewer, the psychologist says, Oh, I, you know, my sister passed away and it is, it is so difficult. I think about her all the time. And he talks about his grief and he asks a couple of questions about the man's father And then he watches how the candidate responds. And the candidate gives his pat answer, and then he doesn't ask any questions. He doesn't try and match the psychologist, the interviewer's emotional displays. He is not someone who wanted to connect. He was not chosen to become an astronaut. But a couple of months later, when another candidate came in, same thing happened. The man walks in, he spills the paper, he's got the garish tie, he laughs uproariously, and the candidate laughs along with him. And then he asks the question about what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? And the man says, You know, nothing that bad has really happened to me. I, I had a friend who passed away about 10 years ago in a car accident. And the psychologist, the interviewer, he says, Oh, and he talks about his sister again. And this time, what the candidate does, the applicant, is that he starts asking questions. He starts saying to him, You know, w- w- What was it like for your mom when your sister passed away? Do you think about her still? Because I still have dreams about my friend who died 10 years ago. Does that ever happen to you with your sister? That man? That was someone who wanted to connect. He was chosen as an astronaut and ended up becoming one of the most successful astronauts in NASA's history. He flew on five missions into space. The way that NASA and other groups and us ourselves can show that we want to connect with the others or can determine who wants to connect with us is by sometimes paying attention to their non-linguistic expressions, not the words coming out of their mouth, but how they say them. Do they match our energy? Do they match our mood? Do they ask us questions? And similarly, when they express something emotional or they express some happiness or they express some sorrow or they laugh, we can match them. That's kind of the interesting thing actually about laughter is that studies show About 80% of laughter does not occur in response to anything humorous, right? (laughs) I just laughed right now. Most of the time when we laugh, it's not because someone said a joke. Most of the time when we laugh, it's to show the other person that we want to connect with them. And when they laugh back, that's how they show that they want to connect with us. Pay attention to someone's mood and energy. See if they match you and match them back in order to connect how do we prove that we want to connect with someone, right? How do we prove beyond laughing with them or asking questions? How do we prove that we really want to understand them? Because there are some conversations, particularly conversations that happen amid conflict and tension, where it's not enough to ask a question and listen to the other person. What studies show is that in order for us to connect with each other, we have to prove to them that we're listening. We have to prove to them that we want to understand in the book, there's a story about um, a big conversation around gun safety that, that occurred between people who were gun advocates and gun control um, protesters, activists. This is the kind of conversation that usually just is totally pointless, because all that happens is that people start screaming to each other, or repeating all the talking points they already know. But, but the organizers of this conversation, they wanted to do something different. They wanted to see if they could get people to talk about these ideas and really understand each other. Not necessarily change anyone's mind, not agree with each other, just understand. And so they taught everyone a specific method for communicating. What they said, and this is called looping for understanding, what they said is, they said, look, what we want you to do is three steps. We want you to ask the other person a question, right? Whatever question you want. And then listen to what they say. And the second step is repeat back in your own words what you just heard them tell you. And then the third step, and this is the step we often forget, but is the most important one, ask them if you got it right. So they give them this training. They say, now go talk about tough subjects. And people start doing this. And these are people who are usually accustomed to being in fights with each other, not really listening, waiting their turn so that they can say their own thing, not connecting. But because they had these assignments, they had to do this looping for understanding. They had to ask each other questions, listen to what each other said, repeat back in their own words what the person just told them, and then ask them if they got it right. And two things would happen. Number one, sometimes they didn't get it right. Sometimes they didn't really understand what the other person was trying to say. And that was really helpful to know because nobody was aware that this miscommunication was occurring until they had asked about it. But the second thing is, When someone repeats back your idea to you and then asks you if they got it right, asks you for permission to understand what you're saying, suddenly it feels like we're really heard, like this person wants to understand us. It feels wonderful. And that is how we prove to other people that you really want to
1: understand them. Thank you, Charles. Listeners, my colleague Rufus Griscom is going to go deep with Charles tomorrow on our sister podcast, The Next Big Idea. They'll be talking for a full hour about the secrets of communication, so be sure to check that out. And if you're liking this show, be sure to give us a rating or review. I'll be back here tomorrow to share some big ideas from Of Greed and Glory in Pursuit of Freedom for All by Deborah Plant. I'm Michael Kovnett. See you tomorrow.